Good evening. Well, it's great to see a, a good crowd here tonight. I can see that when uh, Dr. Nykirk and uh, Dr. Fry encourage people to be places, they actually show up. Uh, Dr. Nykirk asked me to tell you that uh, he'll be, I guess, around in the area where he's standing now afterwards, and uh, he with a sign-up sheet or the Book of Life. I don't know what it is, something <laughs> like that. So. <laughs> Uh, my name is Jeff Cole, and I'm the director of Crossroads, which is Geneva's Center for Enriched Learning. And it's Crossroads that organizes the uh, GVAL series, Geneva Visiting Artists and Lecture Series, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with that term. And it's great to see you here tonight. This is the, the inaugural event of the 2017-2018 academic year for GVALs. And uh, if you didn't get a flyer on your way in, please pick one of these up on your way out. On the front, uh, we have all of the speakers for the fall, and on the back is a preview of the speakers for the spring. And I want to take this opportunity to uh, just put a plug in for our next events, or the other two events this fall. The first one is with David Payne, who's a British actor who will be portraying C.S. Lewis. I think he looks a lot like C.S. Lewis. Uh, the title of his performance is My Life's Journey, An Evening with C.S. Lewis. And from everything I've heard, David Payne really brings C.S. Lewis to life. Now, C.S. Lewis, of course, is someone that uh, we read a lot at Geneva College, and probably many of you read a lot of C.S. Lewis before you came to Geneva College. So I want to encourage you to come out for that. Uh, if you haven't purchased your tickets yet, if you don't have a ticket, uh, afterwards, Kathy Schlachter, who is uh, my right-hand person uh, right over the here, uh, we'll we'll uh, be at the table with tickets. Tickets are $10 a piece and well worth every bit of that. We have three performances, Friday night, the 3rd of November at 7 o'clock, and then Saturday, the 4th of November at 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. 11 a.m. because there's a uh, the last home football game is at 1 o'clock, and we didn't want to interfere with that, but wanted to give everybody an opportunity to do both. So uh, please please come out for that. And then on November 10th, at 1010, Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, an author, uh, author of The Very Good Gospel, uh, will be speaking, and we are excited to have Lisa Sharon Harper with us, and uh, look forward to hearing uh, from her. So without further ado, I'm going to ask Dr. Nykirk to come and introduce tonight's guest. There was a platform I could fall off. I'm not happy. Well, unbeknownst to most of us, there's actually a holiday to celebrate the United States Constitution. Those of you in American government should take note. Uh, in 2004, the uh, United States Congress slipped an amendment into a spending bill uh, to require that on September 17th, the date that the uh, delegates signed the Constitution, we would henceforth have a holiday that we don't seem to get off, I might add, uh, titled Citizenship and Constitution Day. Uh, and in 2005, the United States Department of Education started to require that all schools receiving federal funding were supposed to do some educational programming celebrating the history of the Constitution. Uh, for many years, uh, well, we've recognized that's a worthy goal, given what Geneva's about historically. Uh, and for many years, we decided we honored that by giving students the opportunity to take poli-sci 352. <laughs> <clears throat> 
But starting last year, Dr. Cole decided there was a better way. And so uh, we have started trying under his leadership to uh, have a GVALS lecture uh, roughly around September 17th, you know, plus or minus a few weeks, uh, to, uh, to fulfill this requirement. And so uh, tonight we have Justice Caleb Stiegel with us, who is going to be speaking uh, to us uh, on some constitution-related themes. Uh, as a little bit of background, he's a 1993 graduate of Geneva College. In looking back, I realized that unlike his wife and siblings, he managed to avoid taking anything from me. Not that I would hold that against him. Um, he is a 1999 graduate of the University of Kansas School of Law, and he's had a varied legal career since then. He served as a clerk for a federal appellate court judge. He worked as an attorney in private practice, uh, doing a range of um, legal specialties. He then formed his own firm that uh, specialized in commercial and constitutional issues and was particularly recognized for pro bono work it did on behalf of missionaries in various settings. Uh, he then went on to be an elected uh, county attorney, which would have been their equivalent to the district attorney in Pennsylvania. Uh, so he was very involved in uh, investigating and prosecuting cases and overseeing criminal prosecutions. Uh, he then went on to be the uh, chief legal counsel to the governor of Kansas and oversaw much of the legal work uh, for the executive branch. Uh, in 2013, he was appointed to the Kansas Court of Appeals and in 2014 to the Kansas Supreme Court. So he's had a lot of varied experience uh, in terms of legal activity generally and opportunities to interact with constitutional law particularly. So we're looking forward to hearing him tonight uh, talking about recovering the unwritten Constitution, and then tomorrow at 1010 uh, on what is law. So please join me in welcoming uh, Justice Stegall. Thank you. Thank you. Don't fall. Well, thank you, Dr. Nykirk. Uh, kind introduction. Um, thank you all for being here, and good evening. It's really uh, a privilege for me to come back. Um, I was a senior here at Geneva 25 years ago, um, and I was just reminiscing about that and thinking, my goodness, 25 years. Uh, in fact, uh, my wife and I, Anne, she's a graduate of Geneva as well, we got married pretty soon after we graduated, and our, and our wedding reception was right here um, in this room, and I think that we had a table that the wedding party sat at, and it was right here. So here I am, uh, again, in a very different role. Um, <clears throat> Really, it, it, it is great, though, to be able to come back here after so many years um, and say that, that I'm once again home at Geneva. Um, in fact, I, I look out in the crowd and I've already seen, uh, and now I see more uh, familiar faces who I haven't seen um, for many, many years, and I, I, it occurred to me, uh, maybe we should just skip the lecture and hang out. Um, <laughs> And then it occurred to me that those of you who knew me 25 years ago would say, oh, so he hasn't changed at all in 25 years, right? <clears throat> um, seriously, I am pleased to be back. I'm happy to talk to you about the United States Constitution, about the founding ideas and documents um, of our country, um, and at the same time check a box for you um, for your federal grants. Um, I didn't know that I was doing that, but 
happy to be able to do that for you. Um, oftentimes we think, uh, rightly so, of the Constitution as the supreme law of our land. Um, that's obviously why uh, Congress chose to pick a day to celebrate its final signing and adoption. Um, as such, of course, the Constitution's probably generated more commentary and debate in our nation's history than probably any other document, save uh, perhaps for the Bible. Um, so I'm going to add my few drops of commentary to that ocean of commentary tonight. Uh, the lecture that you just heard introduced, and I know it's the lecture that uh, is in your program uh, and that you came here to hear tonight, is called Recovering Our Unwritten Constitution. Uh, and if that's what you came here uh, with your heart set on hearing, I'm going to have to disappoint you right up front because unbeknownst to anyone at Geneva, I changed uh, the title of the lecture. Um, so the, the, the lecture you're actually going to hear um, is titled Reading Our Unwritten Constitution. Um, and I changed the name of this lecture a, a, a couple days ago as I was thinking about it, really for two reasons. And I thought um, if I'm going to pull the rug out from you, uh, from under you like that, I at least owe you an explanation. So the first reason is pretty substantive. Um, and the second actually is very personal. So the substantive reason, uh, for those of you, and I hope at least some of you in this audience, are familiar with the kinds of debates that surround our Constitution um, in this day and age. You may be familiar with a common trope of these debates, which is to talk about um, rediscovering or recovering or finding a Constitution that has somehow been lost. Um, there's all kinds of books and articles and papers that make that kind of an argument. Just recently, Mike Lee, who is a very conservative senator from the state of Utah, um, wrote a book called The Lost Constitution. And this kind of uh, argument is used by those, generally speaking, who find features of our modern constitutional law to be problematic. Um, perhaps they think that uh, the United States government has grown too large, too centralized, too powerful. Perhaps they're concerned that we've seen a proliferation of different kinds of individual rights um, in recent years. Perhaps they're worried that the administrative and regulatory state is putting a crushing burden on the free market. So any of those kinds of concerns can lead people to say, hey, we just need to go back to the Constitution. If we would just go back to the Constitution, if we could somehow find the lost Constitution, uh, all would be well. Uh, the thesis was probably voiced most provocatively by a judge named Doug Ginsburg. Um, this was a few years ago, and he described a Constitution in exile. And that, of course, kind of invokes this image of uh, a rump party of Bonapartists, maybe, who are waiting for the return of the Tenth Amendment um, from the island of Elba. Uh, <clears throat> at least a few of you laughed uh, at that. You know, that's, that's the nerdiest joke in the entire speech. So. <laughs> you know, when I became a judge, people asked me, so what changed? And I said, really not much, but my jokes got a lot funnier. Um, <clears throat> I've had a thesis for a while now that that may only be true in Kansas and that if I leave the jurisdiction, my, I'll just go back to being my unfunny self. So I, I don't know. You'll be the judge of that. Um, 
So I don't want to talk about uh, recovering anything. Um, regardless of the merits of that lost Constitution thesis, that's not what I really want to talk about, and I was worried that my original title might lead to confusion on that front. So I changed it. Uh, personally speaking, I realized uh, that delivering a lecture here at Geneva called Reading Our Unwritten Constitution has a, a very nice personal symmetry to it for me, uh, a symmetry that I find pleasing, because the last time I contributed to Geneva's academic intellectual life was back in, I think, 2004, when Professor Eric Miller invited me to contribute an essay to, I think, what, the inaugural issue of the Geneva Review, and I, I don't even know if the Geneva Review is still being published. Someone says no, unfortunately. Well, I uh, delivered a lecture called, or sorry, delivered a essay to Professor Miller that I called Reading the Unwritten Word. Um, so, as you can tell, there's some symmetry there, and in that essay, um, I discussed uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost in light of his theory of what John Milton called the double scripture. Um, the double scripture being one written external scripture, we're all familiar with that, and one that was unwritten and internal. And Milton had this notion that, I'm quoting Milton now, all things are eventually referred to the unwritten word. Now that essay reflected my uh, long-standing fascination with one of the most fundamental and foundational ideas of Western civilization. Um, I've progressed since 2004 from a young lawyer to a now seasoned justice on a high court, and I, I, I hope my fascination with that idea has matured some. It certainly hasn't abated, though. Um, simply put, it's the idea that there is a difference between a sign uh, and what the sign signifies. That is, uh, human beings perceive the world uh, through this complex web of signs and symbols, words, of course, being primary among them. And while those things carry their own substance and meaning, they don't constitute ultimate reality. They merely point to it or reflect it. And, of course, they can do so imperfectly uh, and sometimes deceptively if that reflection is distorted. So the idea rests on this premise, this premise that there is a higher reality which sits somewhere behind the signs and symbols that we use to communicate. Uh, and this higher reality is not directly accessible to us. Ultimate reality in this sense is mediated to us through its symbolic avatars. Um, hopefully you're starting to recognize this idea. It's all over the place. Um, just a couple quick examples. It started, perhaps, with its most original uh, articulation in the philosophy of Plato. Um, I learned about Plato from Dr. Batar here at Geneva and his theory of the forms. Um, and, uh, of course, I hope that this audience will recognize the idea in the words of St. Paul. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life, right? That's St. Paul, and that's the same basic idea. Of course, present in Paul's formulation is an added claim uh, that understanding and guarding the relationship or the proper relationship between these two things, between letter and spirit, is key to maintaining a healthy society or an ordered polis. Um, you know, Paul has this imagery of letters as mere lifeless skins 
um, until they're animated by a spirit that might be located above, uh, behind, or inside them. <clears throat> As it turns out, this foundational idea has had a very deep and lasting impact on our systems of law, um, and in particular on our systems of constitutional law. So that's why I want to explore this idea as it relates to the Constitution uh, and to law with you tonight. Um, so what is an unwritten Constitution? Well, I'll talk more about that in a minute, but very briefly, just to sort of set the stage, I want you to think about something, what that something is, we aren't quite sure, but think about something that sits above, uh, behind, or perhaps within our written Constitution, giving it life. And as we uh, consider this question, consider this topic, I'm going to try to answer three questions. Um, first, what, what is it? What is an unwritten Constitution, and do we really have one? Second, is the unwritten Constitution law? That is, does it have the authority to bind us? Um, and third, if it's not law, uh, what good is it? Does it serve any other purpose? And lest you be tempted to think that this is, you know, whoa, this is a really academic discussion, it's really abstract, um, I'm not sure what application this might have to our political discourse today, I want to just give you a quick example that I hope will sort of explode that notion for you. And I don't know if you remember this, this only happened a couple months ago, um, but uh, uh, a man named Steve Miller is one of the president, President Trump's spokespersons, and he was at a press conference giving a press briefing a few months ago <clears throat> talking about, I think he was talking about President Trump's uh, plans uh, with regard to what's been become called the travel ban. It, and I'm not positive about that, but it had something to do with immigration. And in the midst of this press conference, a reporter named Jim Acosta um, accosted uh, Miller about Trump's policies. And he had a very unique way of doing so. Jim Acosta quoted to Steve Miller the poem on the Statue of Liberty about give us your huddled masses, your poor, etc. I'm probably butchering the language. But Acosta stood up in the White House and said, don't you think that President Trump's policies in this area violate a deep American tradition that's found and reflected in this language. And Stephen Miller, without missing a beat, um, got rather perturbed and started firing a number of questions back at Acosta that all had the gist of, you know, he would recite some version of an immigration statute from our past history, and he would say, well, does that violate the law of the Statue of Liberty? Does that violate the law of the Statue of Liberty? Does that violate the law of the Statue of Liberty? And I hope uh, that example, uh, I, I certainly think it should um, illustrate how this dynamic between written law and what might be behind it can sort of come to fruition. And it actually, uh, it's my anticipation that after the lecture, if you pay any attention at all, you're going to start seeing these things pop up all over the place, because this theme runs throughout our political discourse today. I'm going to return to Acosta and Miller at the end, so keep that in your mind. So what is an unwritten, unwritten constitution? Well, I need to, uh, here's the, the boring academic part, I guess, with apologies to 
Professor Nykirk. Um, to answer that question, I really do need to go back uh, in time and at least sketch out for you the history of English constitutional law. Uh, and I'll go all the way back uh, to the Magna Carta. And beginning with the Magna Carta, uh, England, and starting with the English noblemen, uh, strove to find legal limits on the power of the king. Uh, it was a centuries-long struggle, often violent, involving wars, etc. But eventually, uh, the king's power was restrained, first in favor of the noblemen, uh, and later in favor of parliament, and later still in favor of all Englishmen. Um, and even at the time of the Magna Carta, uh, these rights that were said to be held by Englishmen uh, were considered to be pre-existing. In other words, they didn't just spring into existence with the drafting of the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta said, we are just recognizing something that already exists. So by the 17th century in England, uh, English political theorists had a pretty good idea of what they called their constitution. Now, of course, it was not written down. This was an unwritten constitution. Anyone who opposed an act of the king or of parliament would often appeal to what they called their, quote, ancient constitution. And the ancient constitution, of course, had always existed. Uh, it could, in fact, invalidate acts of the king whenever those acts violated the ancient constitution. Well, what was it? Well, there's lots of examples. I'll just read you one. This is uh, from a, a guy named Bolingbroke, um, one of the theorists I mentioned. Uh, and he said that the ancient constitution consisted of this. The assemblage of laws, institutions, and customs derived from certain fixed principles of reason, directed to certain fixed objects of public good that compose the general system, according to which the community has agreed to be governed. A recent scholar who studies this period, um, named Susanna Sherry, uh, has helpfully described this ancient constitution or suggested that this ancient constitution was actually nothing more than the norms that constituted the English people as a people. It's what made them, it's what made England, England. Uh, Sherry goes on to pretty accurately, in my view, describe the three fundamental tenets of this unwritten constitution. Uh, and really, these are the tenets that proved very fruitful for our country at its founding, at the time of the revolution. First, simply put, there is a higher law. The English called it their ancient constitution. Um, and that higher law is there, and it provides a benchmark against which all actions of, the, of lesser powers, the king or parliament, can be judged. Second point, that this higher law or fundamental law constitutes a mixture of customs, natural law, religious law, enacted law, and then what they said, what they called reason. And the third point, that Sherry describes, and this is the crucial point, is that uh, in England, they developed the idea that the power to articulate the fundamental law lay with judges. So it was the judges who had the authority to pronounce void anything, any act of the king or parliament that was in violation of the ancient constitution. So I hope you start to recognize 
the contours of what we think of as our constitutional law, even as it's just generally understood amongst the American public. It's the idea that we have a constitution, that we have lesser actors who pass laws, and then we have judges who have the authority to say that law is unconstitutional. That's so commonplace in our system that oftentimes we don't stop to think about, well, what does that really mean, that something's unconstitutional? Well, those ideas, of course, proved to be a powerful resource for the American colonies as they resisted what they viewed to be violations of that ancient constitution, right? Um, Alexander Hamilton, for example, one of our founding fathers, uh, sort of expressed the views of the whole founding generation when he said that what constitutes the American colonies is written, but it's not written on paper. Here's what he said, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for in parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam on the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself. Again, I'm sure some in this audience will hear echoes of the prophet Jeremiah, perhaps. We're talking about law written on hearts. The Declaration of Independence itself uh, appealed to this same uh, concept, the ancient constitution, as it lay claim to the legality of our revolution. So I think we can say pretty conclusively that before 1787, that's the year we're here to celebrate, right? The year the Constitution was written down. Before that year, we did have an unwritten Constitution. And that was, in fact, the legal foundation on which the colonists rebelled and on which the founders constructed institutions of a new nation. Uh, but what about after 1787? Even if everything I've just described is true, didn't the ratification of a new written constitution sweep all of that away? Uh, well, to answer that question, I'm going to fast forward in time to 1988 and refer to someone who is certainly qualified to talk about it, Justice Antonin Scalia. And Scalia in 1988 hosted uh, and uh, moderated a discussion that was convened by the Federalist Society to uh, answer this question, is there an unwritten constitution? And in his opening remarks, this is what Scalia said. The question of whether an unwritten constitution exists is very interesting, but it's also very easy. The answer is, of course not. No judge in any court applying what purports to be a principle of constitutional law that overrides the activities of the legislature appeals to anything except the written constitution. Well, that's pretty straightforward and good, and if only Scalia had stopped talking there, we, I could probably stop talking as well, um, but he didn't. He provocatively went on to say, but taken another way, the easy answer to this question is, of course there is an unwritten constitution. Many, if not most, of the provisions of our written constitution do not make sense, except as they are given meaning by the background in which they were adopted. In this way, the unwritten constitution encompasses a whole history of meaning without which the constitution is meaningless. Again, more hints of probably St. Paul and John Milton both here 
And you know, my response is sort of, well, thanks a lot, Justice Scalia. That helped out a lot, right? It makes everything clear. Uh, well, it at least allows me to say, on the authority of Justice Scalia, and for the purposes of the rest of my talk here tonight, I think we can assume, and take Scalia's word for it, that at least in some sense, an unwritten constitution continues to exist in this country even after we adopted a written constitution. And that allows me to move to what really is the most important question, which is, is that written con unwritten constitution law? Can it, does it have the authority to bind the citizens and the institutions of government? Can it demand our obedience the way that the written constitution does? And then finally, do judges have recourse to this unwritten constitution to invalidate other provisions of the law? So to begin to answer that question, I'm going to do what, uh, what I do as a judge and what other judges do, which is we get a hard question and we say, I don't know, let's see what other people said. Um, so we look back through time and we say, what did other judges say about this? And perhaps what did other legal scholars, what have they said about this? So I just did a, 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 a very cursory review, and it's interesting because uh, lots and lots of other judges and scholars have said a lot about this. Um, and keep in mind, what I'm about to read to you, these are binding decisions of courts. This isn't just, I say just, but it isn't just an academic writing in sort of hallowed halls of, I don't know, the Ivy Leagues or what have you. Um, and it turns out, you know, there's a pretty healthy split of opinion. And there's a pretty healthy group of courts and judges on each side of this. So just here's a few examples. Here's what the Iowa Supreme Court said. There is, as it were, behind the written constitution an unwritten constitution, which guarantees and protects the absolute rights of the people. The government can exercise no power to impair or deny them. Many of them may not be enumerated in the Constitution, nor preserved by express provisions of it, notwithstanding they exist and are possessed by the people, free from government interference. Missouri Supreme Court said, there is no such thing in a free court as an absolute unrestrained power in any branch of government. While there are frequent expressions to the effect that a statute cannot be declared void unless the objector can put his finger on some specific provision of the Constitution which has been violated, yet we are disposed to concede that there is in this country such a thing as an unwritten Constitution, that there are implied reservations of right in every free government of such an absolute character that laws infringing them will not be enforced by the court. One of those uh, academics in the hallowed halls of the Ivy League, uh, a guy named Akhil Amar, who's one of our leading constitutional scholars right now, actually wrote a book just a few years ago. And you guessed it, the title of the book is America's Unwritten Constitution. And here's how he introduced it. The written constitution can't work as it's intended without something outside of it. The unwritten constitution to fill in the gaps. And then he goes on to say some provocative things. The right to privacy, 
one person, one vote, the presumption of innocence, the right to remain silent. As Americans, we think of these freedoms, and we think of many more, as our constitutional rights. But they are nowhere to be found in our written constitution. So while they're not explicitly part of our written constitution, they are, this is what Amar says, they are part of our constitutional system because they are part of our unwritten constitution. Now, some of you may have already spotted a potential problem with this, a hint of trouble, perhaps, in this uh, paradise of unwritten constitutional law. Um, and if you've spotted the, the problem, then good for you, you're a skeptic, right? Um, you're the person in class uh, or when you were younger who probably told your, asked your professor or your parents, uh, how do you know? Who says, right? But that's an important question to ask uh, of judges who are purporting to find statutes unconstitutional. You ought to have a good reason for that. How do we know, in short, that this unwritten constitution is not merely a facade behind which judges are importing their own sort of personal policy preferences into our constitutional fabric, imposing it on this sort of lifeless and helpless parchment that just can't defend itself, right? Sure enough, you don't have to look very hard to find judges and courts that say exactly this. And here's just a few quick examples. Here's what the Nebraska Supreme Court said. This opinion, talking about the notion of an unwritten constitution, this opinion, to our minds, introduces a new principle into our system of jurisprudence. It is pregnant with mischievous consequences. We've been taught to regard the state and federal constitutions as the sole test by which the validity of acts of the legislature should be determined. But if this opinion is to stand as the law of the state, then in addition to such a test, there is another elusive something. It is elastic and uncertain as an unwritten constitution, which could be invoked to defeat the legislative will. We cannot believe such a principle should receive the sanction of this court. Here's the Ohio Supreme Court. Courts cannot nullify an act of the legislature on the vague ground that they think it is opposed to the latent spirit that underlies the Constitution. So, no St. Paul in you know, these courts, right? It's the letter all the way down. Uh, you can't rely on the spirit. In a recent case, uh, this is out of the Fifth Circuit, written by, um, by a, a great circuit court judge named Edith Jones. And this was in a case, um, well, just for sake of discretion, I'll just read you the way the court described this case. I won't try to describe it myself. Two retail distributors of sexual devices sought to increase their sales in Texas. Faced with a Texas statute prohibiting the promotion of such devices, these businesses sought a judgment to hold the statute unconstitutional. This was in 2008. Um, and the Fifth Circuit ended up concluding, yeah, that statute's unconstitutional. You can't do that. They relied on a constitutional doctrine called substantive due process. 
It's the idea that in the 14th Amendment, when it talks about guaranteeing liberty to people, that it, it brings with it some kind, of, some kind of substantive right. And that doctrine has a very, very long uh, history in our courts. Um, but here's what Edith Jones, in dissent, said about that. I fear that the end in this area of the law will be a separate, unwritten constitution established solely by the judiciary. The assumption of such vast authority by courts denies the people's constitutional authority to make the moral and ontologically sensitive decisions upon which substantive due process rights should be founded. So this is not just sort of an academic discussion. It's an active um, and complicated uh, issue that courts deal with all the time. And it's important, I think, to observe that the division between these two schools of thought um, is not really clearly ideological. You can't say within the broad sweep uh, of these opinions or commentators that on one side there are those who are for lack of a better word, reliably conservative, or that on the other, there are those that are liberal. And I want to illustrate this point by contrasting uh, two thinkers. Mike Lee is the first one. I mentioned him already. He wrote the book called The, the Lost Constitution. Um, and, you know, he's a text guy. He's an originalist. He says, if we just go back to the written constitution, all will be well. Um, but there's a contrasting position that's been taken by many conservatives. And for that view, I want to highlight the, the writing and thinking of a guy named Russell Kirk. And Russell Kirk, if you don't know, is one of the most important, probably, uh, conservative political theorists of the 20th century. And he wrote a book in 1990 called The Conservative Constitution. And in that book, he explicitly described his hope to acquaint the reader with what he called the conservative intent and function of America's Constitution, both written and unwritten. And he went on to articulate what really was a very classically English understanding of our constitutional structure. He says the written Constitution is overlaid on top of a whole network of traditions, morals, and long-standing ideas about reality. This really is the ancient Constitution, right? Kirk argues that shorn of its roots, the written constitution that we have just isn't up to the task of anchoring order and civilization in the midst of a radically changing world. Here's what he says. The problems of modern society transcend simple questions of government structure. An appeal to the pristine purity of the constitution of the United States will not suffice as a barrier against the destructive power of fanatic ideology. Well, you, I don't even need to give that a definition. That can be whatever you think it is. The point here is, Kirk is saying to Mike Lee, you're crazy, you're wrong. If you think that just the text of the Constitution is going to save you from whatever you think is wrong, um, you are deluding yourself. Um, in fact, Kirk goes on to say this. The American constitution of the government survives. But how much of the providential constitution, the unwritten constitution, still operates within American society? Is the unwritten constitution a mere ghost 
If so, how can the written Constitution be long for the world? So you see Kirk counters Lee's uh, The Lost Written Constitution with his own The Lost Unwritten Constitution. Or maybe, you know, he, since he invoked a ghost, we could say it's the haunted Constitution. Um, but really, that's what Kirk thought, that this idea was, well, tradition has sort of been relegated to a mythical bedtime story, kind of like a ghost story, but really, in the cold, hard light of day, when grown-ups go to rule, it has no place. Now, both of these views, and they are diametrically opposed views, uh, both of them have substantial followings amongst conservatives. And frankly, if I wanted to, if I was able to take the time, you know, I could walk through that exact same dichotomy amongst thinkers and judges on the left. So, which, of, which is it? Is it the text, the whole text, and nothing but the text, so help me God? Um, that mantra, by the way, is uh, the title of a, an article by another influential originalist, a man that I actually have great respect for. His name's Michael Stokes Paulson. And just to give you a taste of uh, the tenor of this debate, here's what he writes in that article. No, no, no. America has no unwritten constitution. Ours is a system of written constitutionalism. There are only sound conclusions or, and inferences, or unsound ones, from the text itself. The unwritten constitution is a misnomer, a hoax, a charade, a deception, a farce, a snare, a delusion, a lawyer's trick, a pickpocket, sleight of hand, a canard. So, in face of Kirk's, you know, slamming the door on Mike Lee, I would say Paulson comes back at Kirk and, you know, he essentially calls him delusional. Um, he's a trickster. And really, at this point, you could be forgiven for just throwing up your hands and declaring, well, this is a hopeless mess. Um, and while I, I actually don't think that it is a hopeless mess, I think it is complicated. And I think these questions uh, can be resolved through a great deal of careful work. Um, that's not what I want, that's not where I want to take us tonight. But I do want to use that sort of it's a hopeless mess um, as a catalyst to perhaps suggesting tonight and for this audience a way that we can reframe this debate. We can restate these categories and perhaps achieve something constructive, something which I think is too often missed or glossed over in these discussions. And that is this. There's a curious quality to written constitutionalism. And this quali quality, this characteristic, is its tendency over time to put strains on, to put a burden on, if not to undermine, the ability of a, a society like ours, a heterogeneous, geographically large, culturally diverse, religiously pluralist society to live at peace with itself. Um, lots of people uh, who are in churches understand this. There is an inherent tension between written creeds and a pluralist society. Now this is, reason for this is pretty obvious, I think. It's because written creeds tend to invite interpretive challenges. Interpretive challenges, in turn, tend to invite authoritative interpretations. 
And finally, the prospect of binding once for all authoritative interpretations tends to invite combatants who are armed to the teeth and ready to wage a pitched, all-chips-in battle to the bitter end. Which is to say that the existence, the very fact that we have a written constitution has a kind of gravitational pull that tends to slowly draw every problem into its orbit. So it appears that, at least on some level, the notion that a written constitution doesn't resolve all of our most significant disputes is, in fact, intolerable to us. Now, I make this as merely an observation of history. It's one I think is quite defensible, rather than a normative judgment either way. But I think I can say that the drafters of our Constitution actually understood this problem, uh, and they anticipated it, and they provided a pretty ingenious solution to the problem because they structured our written constitution in such a way to prevent these kinds of all-encompassing dictates to come from a single source of power. They broke that power up, right? They spread it around. It's what we call separation of powers. So you have horizontal, uh, a horizontal breaking up of power, and then they broke power up vertically in a system that we call federalism, right? So you have ambition checking ambition in the federal government, and you have a system of federalism that permits localized diversity and competition between the regions. And what this does, amongst other things, is it, it creates a high degree of political indeterminacy. And indeterminacy happens to be a really important ingredient to a peaceful, pluralistic society. Well, why is that? Well, here's why. Because you and your ideas, the things you care about, you might be up this year, but you know you might be down next year. Or if you're down this year, you have hope you'll be up next year. Everyone has a voice, and this sort of self-interested mantra that I learned in a Bob Dylan song that goes, you better be nice to the right people on the way up because sooner or later you're going to meet them coming down. You know, that really coheres in a, into a kind of public-spirited civility and it amounts to a very real, if perhaps shallow, common good. In conclusion, I want to look back at Alexander Hamilton. In Federalist Paper number 84, uh, he famously objected to the addition of the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. And it wasn't because he disagreed with any of the rights that it expressed, but instead it was because he was worried about this exact thing that I'm describing. He was worried about destroying this kind of indeterminacy, which the Constitution is created to protect and to foster. Um, here's what he wrote in Federalist 84. A minute detail of particular rights is less applicable to a constitution like ours under consideration, which is merely intended to regulate the general interests of the nation, than to a constitution which has the regulation of every species of personal and private concern. So I affirm that a Bill of Rights in this sense is not only unnecessary, but is dangerous. And it's dangerous, according to Hamilton, because the Constitution would tend, over time, to extend to be exactly what he didn't want it to be, which is a Constitution that regulates 
every species of personal and private concerns. You know, at this point, I think it probably is necessary, I think it certainly is necessary to say that there is a powerful rejoinder to Hamilton and to this argument for indeterminacy. Um, and it's pretty easy to, to imagine, right? If you're an African-American, let's say, who lives in the Jim Crow South, you know, what you really want and what you really need is a whole bunch of determinacy. And none now could plausibly deny the justice of that claim. So I don't want to create the impression that this is an easy question or one without, that's not fraught with difficulty. It is. Um, but it's real. It's real that this idea of a written constitution, and I think we're seeing it play, it, play out, uh, really does put a heavy burden on our ability as a country, as a society, to live at peace with each other. And here's where I want to wrap up. This is uh, the way that I think we can reappropriate, if you will, the notion of an unwritten constitution uh, to serve as a check against this tendency. Uh, and to do so, I want to rewind the clock really quickly to St. Augustine. St. Augustine talked about constitutions. You probably didn't know that. He did. He said there's two ways that a people can be constituted. Um, they can be constituted according to justice, or they can be constituted according to love. And a justice-based constitution is a written constitution in effect. It's a constitution which says, according to Augustine, this is what we agree is right. And Augustine said there's a whole different way to constitute a people. And that's a constitution that is, in our words language tonight, an unwritten one. And rather than ordering what people do, rather than ordering their behavior, it orders their desires. And this is how he articulated that. People can be constituted uh, when they come together around what he called loved things held in common. The one orders behavior. It's a constitution of justice. The other orders desire. It's really a constitution of love. And I want to suggest that focusing on this notion of an unwritten constitution as an effort to order desire by art articulating loved things held in common could actually bear quite a bit of fruit. And it doesn't have to be fruit in a courtroom or in legal theory. It can bear fruit in our society. In that sense, I think, reflecting back to the story I told about Jim Acosta and Steve Miller, you know, I think in that exchange, we could probably say that each one of those got something right. They were just talking from a different constitution, right? You know, Miller probably did get it right. The, stat the, the poem on the Statue of Liberty is not law, and to suggest that it is has... Uh, it, he, he successfully demonstrated it to be absurd. Um, but what he misses is what Acosta got right, which is we do have shared traditions, and we can debate about what those are, but that shared culture and history and traditions can order our common good. And we would do well to look at that and to consider what 
is our common good? What are our loved things held in common? Just to finish up, T.S. Eliot wrote that one of the problems of modern society is that we, quote, dream of a system so perfect that no one needs to be good. If I could paraphrase, I think Eliot's saying that our written constitutionalism might tempt us to imagine that by constitutionalizing every problem, we can escape this Augustinian, prob this Augustinian question of how do we order desire. We could quite literally exist without a common good. And I think that if we conceive of what we've been talking about as our unwritten constitution in these terms, in terms of what is our common good, Literally, what are the loved things we hold in common? We can turn Eliot's phrase around and achieve the benefit of saving and preserving what really I think is the genius of our written constitution. And that is that it gives us a system, really, that is so good that we don't need to be perfect. Or rather, we don't need to let our own imperfections tear us apart. Um, so that's the thought I want to leave you with. Um, when I began, I said, how long do I have to talk? And, you know, I, it's hard for me to regulate how long I talk since I became a judge because no one tells me to stop talking anymore. Um, so I don't know how long I could have talked tonight before somebody would have said, you're done. But I'm done now. So that's the last thought I wanted to leave you with is uh, an admonition and an encouragement to think about um, these traditions, these uh, ideas that we have that underlie our republic, not as law, per se, but rather as loved things held in common. Thank you. I'm more than happy to take questions. I don't know if that's what you had in mind. Thank you so much, Justice Stiegel. We appreciate it. And now we get to turn the, the tables on you, because normally you're not asked the questions, right? You get to ask the questions. So uh, I'll bring the microphone around so that the brilliant questions that you have can be recorded uh, tonight. So uh, we'll just open it up for a few minutes of questions. be one brave soul. All right. <laughs> well, let me just say it first. I really appreciate your talk. Um, so just a real quick question. Um, so when you're talking about how currently it's frowned on to have the, I guess, the spirit of the law, I guess it was another way to say the unwritten law, uh, to have the spirit of the law in the courtroom, would you say it's a possibility that it... Uh, I guess like when morals are lost, it may vary. Uh, let me word it better. When morals are lost, it may no longer be viable to appeal to, this, to the spirit of the Constitution. Do you think that's fair? I, I'm not 100% sure I caught the question. When, when morals are lost, is the spirit of the Constitution dead? Okay, so... That, yeah, great question, right? That goes right to the heart of what we're talking about. Um, I think earlier you talked, 
you mentioned what judges do or how does this work itself out in the courtroom. Um, and that's a good opportunity for me to say in the work of judges and what I do and what I see, the, these categories are not, you know, you may not have thought that I laid this out in very neat categories. Um, in the realm of judging, it's a lot more messy than this. And, you know, you're not going to find judges very often saying, well, uh, I'm going to pick up this uh, idea from the unwritten constitution and use it. Now, I found a few examples of courts doing that, but it's not very often. However, I would say, in my experience, most judges would be ready and readily agree with Justice Scalia that, uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, there's a whole mountain of things that we consult and need to look at in order to make sense of our Constitution. And then, frankly, speaking in terms of society as a whole, there, yes, there, there, are, there is a whole network of underlying norms, right, that need to be effective societally for our Constitution to function. And an easy way um, to demonstrate this is to look at some of the nations around the world who have adopted, sometimes word for word, our Constitution, and those norms of behavior just don't exist, and the Constitution is entirely ineffective. And so, uh, at a minimum, that tells us that the words by themselves aren't magic, right? It's not a magical incantation, we the people, and now you get a great society. That's not how it works. If you resort to an unwritten constitution uh, to be stand behind the written constitution, may not your unwritten constitution be different from mine, which may be different from Ian's, which yeah. may be different from Trisha's, and does not the right or the or does not the ability of a judge to resort to an unwritten constitution up there, in fact, turn this into a nation of rule by men and women rather than rule of law. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that you articulated exactly the uh, textualist or originalist critique of, I'm not saying you, but you are, you've articulated it. The idea being, look, this is, this, is just, this is just way too much indeterminacy, right? The reason we have a written constitution is because these are actually words that we can all go to a piece of paper and we can at least say, well, we agree that these are the words that are on the piece of paper. That gives us some common ground place to start. And if all we're doing is drawing, I mean, you, you, you heard the language that courts use, this vague, mischievous notion that we can just draw from thin air, then all of a sudden, it's pretty capricious. We're just dependent upon what that particular judge thought. I would follow that up, and th that's a powerful critique. It absolutely is. Um, I think it's interesting. Mo oftentimes, we think of that critique as coming from so-called conservatives against what we think of as liberals, perhaps. That's oftentimes how it's portrayed in the public media, at least. Kirk is an interesting example of a guy who completely explodes that myth, um, because here's a conservative who's saying, no, 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 no. I mean, he was he's sort of uh, in reference to the question before. We better have an, uh, an unwritten constitution, and if we forget about it, it doesn't matter what the words say. That's what Kirk's saying. Um, you know, I'm not here to provide a 
determinative answer between those two. Um, I will just say, however, that it's an interesting question to say, and I didn't talk about this at all, but if we can agree there's something called an unwritten constitution, well, what is it? And as a matter of fact, uh, there is a central group of ideas that most of us and most Americans can probably agree on. Um, you know, you start looking at things like the Declaration of Independence. Look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Look at the Gettysburg Address. You know, there's all kinds of shared history that articulates who we are as a people. And frankly, I think Acosta was not wrong to point to Emma Lazarus's poem on the Statue of Liberty. Not as law, but as something that articulates a deeply held identity of who we think we are. Literally a common good. And that's what I hope, that's what the lecture at least is intended to suggest, uh, that maybe we don't think the unwritten constitution, maybe we don't think it's a good idea to have judges saying that it's law. I don't think that's a good idea, actually. I'll just tip my cards. Um, that doesn't mean that it serves no purpose. It may, in fact, serve an incredibly important purpose. So, yeah, I appreciated your lecture as well. And one, one question I wanted to ask was, you mentioned, at, you mentioned how Paul, the Apostle Paul, first started and Plato, to some extent, the idea of, of a law being having a spirit behind it. And then you went to Magna Carta and how that, it re, how it, how that influenced things. I guess what I was curious was, it seems like there's a long distance between Plato and Paul and Magna Carta. Is, it, is the idea of a spirit behind a law something that kind of like it died and then reemerged with Magna Carta? Or, is it, or was there some way in which this idea was present throughout that period of time between uh, the Apostle Paul and Plato and Magna Carta? I, I, I'm, great question. Um, if there are any historians in the room, I would defer to the historians to answer that question. Um, because I'm certain that I can't give you probably a very accurate or knowledgeable um, recitation of those thousand years. But this is what I would say. And that is that the, this idea that took root in Western civilization has borne tremendous fruit. Over the centuries, it has proved incredibly um, fruitful in enabling society um, to come under what we call a rule of law um, and to do so in a way that is, uh, continually refreshes itself, right? So this notion in in Christianity and in Greek philosophy, that there is some kind of a spirit which can be appealed to by those who are under the oppression of the letter, let's say, um, has uh, enabled a constant check and balance between those who claim uh, to act with authority and those who, on the other hand, say, oh, no, 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 uh, you have... Uh, you know, turn the letter against the spirit. You see this dynamic play out over and over and over again. Uh, we're 500 years out, right, from one of the most important historical examples of that, the Protestant Reformation. 
Well, please join me in thanking here. Justice Stiegel. Oh, we have one more. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, my question was just, um, you touched on the late Justice Scalia's uh, comments on this, and I wanted to know, um, first, is his opinion really reflective of the entire Supreme Court, which is now, of course, just one judge, one judge different? Um, does it reflect on, on the Supreme Court's current opinion? And historically, how has that looked? Has the Supreme Court held generally the same opinion on this? I presume not, uh, but how's that looked generally and, and how's that look now? Well, Scalia very slyly managed to, as he often did, um, introduce the topic without actually saying much, <laughs> right? That was the point, that was why I used him. Uh, to the extent what I quoted to you from Scalia, it, that's non-controversial. Uh, I think, I don't think you find, it, you find very few people who would disagree with that. Because all he's saying is, Look, if what you mean by an unwritten constitution is something that judges can just ignore the constitution and go over here, nobody thinks that. I'm not sure you can hold to that with absolute confidence as, as reflected in some of the case opinions that I've read to you, but that's more or less the case. And if, on the other hand, if you say, well, if by an unwritten constitution you just mean the context in which these words were drafted, well, no, that's not controversial either. Everyone believes that. Um, the point being, well, there's a whole lot left unsaid here, right? And that's where, of course, you get to the disagreements. Now, uh, just for reference, one of the most important areas of disagreement among modern judges has to do with this doctrine, this notion of substantive due process. And I touched on that. And some judges, like Jones, who I read from, say, this has become nothing more than an unwritten constitution. Um, other judges have plausible and reasonable arguments for saying, no, this is rooted in the text of our written constitution. I saw one hand here. I don't know how quickly you want to. Where was it over here? So if the unwritten constitution can't be accurately described or like defined, how can we possibly use it in law and how does it serve any purpose if we can't accurately define it for like everybody as a whole? Like how can that be used in law? And again, that's uh, the, that's, you're, you're echoing the critique of textualists who would, who, that's what they would say is they look, uh, this is too vague. It's too hard to figure out what this is. We don't agree with each other about what counts. Um, and so it shouldn't be law. Um, I think that in the main, that's, that argument has largely carried the day. You know, Elena Kagan, who is on the United States Supreme Court, an Obama appointee, in her confirmation hearing said, we're all originalists now. And what did she mean by that? Well, she meant that this argument has had such power and force in the last 30 years that, in fact, there are very few lawyers and judges who will say that, well, we can just ignore what the text says. We're all originalists now in the sense that we all look and start with the text. But think about what Akhil Amar said, just to balance out the scales. Um, 
one person, one vote, the presumption of innocence. Um, are we ready to say that those aren't part of our fundamental law because they're not found in the text? That gets to be a pretty dicey proposition. So it's not as easy, perhaps, as it may appear at first blush. Justice Siegel, thanks so much again for being with us. Thank and you. And we look forward You're to welcome. hearing more from you tomorrow. Yeah. Thanks for coming tonight.